Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So don't spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring now. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available to everyone. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile for people who hate their phone bills and who are ready to cut their ties to big wireless. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com slash cold. The most significant event of this week was the ECB's surprise 75 basis point rate hike. The expectation was for a 50 basis point hike. Interest rates in the Eurozone are now at one and a quarter percent. Now, of course, that's still a very low rate, especially in the face of nine and a half percent or so year over year inflation, which is where they are in the Eurozone as of August. In fact, Eurozone inflation is now higher, at least the way they measure it with their CPI, than it is in the U.S. And one of the main reasons for that has been the weakness in the euro relative to the U.S. dollar. In fact, the euro, again, for a good part of this week, trading below parity with the U.S. dollar, though it did rise towards the end of the week, settling back above parity. But the weakness in the euro in relation to the dollar is one of the reasons that eurozone inflation is as high as it is. It's also one of the reasons that U.S. inflation isn't even higher because while the Eurozone has had to deal with the problem of a weak Euro making their inflation stronger, America has had the benefit of a strong dollar making our inflation weaker. So as bad as our inflation has been, think about how much worse it would have been had the dollar been weak as opposed to strong, at least relative to other currencies. But I also think more importantly, than the fact that the ECB decided to be more aggressive than what the markets had expected was the tone of the press conference that followed. And if you listen closely to what Lagarde was saying, she is now very much in the inflation fighting camp. Her rhetoric is very similar to Jerome Powell's rhetoric in how committed the ECB is to fighting inflation and to bringing inflation back down to their 2% target. Now, first of all, I think the 2% target in and of itself represents a slight change in ECB policy, which I do not think is insignificant. Because if you recall, when inflation was still below 2%, at least officially, what the ECB said, and if you go back to all these Mario Draghi press conferences, Mario Draghi always claimed that the goal of the ECB was to get inflation to be close to, but below 2%, meaning 2% was too high. They needed to be below 2%, but they had to get as close to 2% as possible without touching it. Now, of course, that whole policy made no sense and nobody questioned it. I never heard a single person at a press conference talk about how ridiculous such a policy was 
and to ask Mario Draghi to explain it. After all, why is 1.9% inflation great, but 2% is a disaster, and so is 1.8? I mean, what is the magical number that makes 1.9 the sweet spot? Or maybe is it 1.99? Maybe 1.9 is still too low because you can still get closer to 2% without touching it. Now, this nonsensical policy was all about trying to come up with an excuse to continue easy money so that politicians in the Eurozone didn't have to face reality, so that they didn't have to cut government spending or act responsibly. That's really what the ECB was trying to do. It was trying to bail out European politicians by allowing them to continue to deficit spend to continue to buy votes with borrowed money, and to make it work, the ECB had to keep borrowed money super cheap. So they came up with this ridiculous theory that because inflation was still not quite close enough to 2%, they needed negative interest rates. They needed quantitative easing. But the whole 2% number was originally conceived of as a ceiling. The whole idea was to keep inflation below 2%. Not get as close to 2% as you can, just make sure you're below 2%. Because it makes no sense to try to get close to it. If inflation is 1%, why is that a problem? Why is it so important that it be 1.9%? But it wasn't just 1%. It was 1.5, 1.6. And Mario Draghi was saying, that's not enough. We have to work extra hard. We need to keep cranking out money. We need to keep interest rates negative and expand our balance sheet because we got to get closer to 2%. And one of the things I pointed out in real time as being part of the lunacy of this policy, I said, hey, what happens if they overshoot 2%? What happens if they get to 25 or 3 or 4 Now what? What kind of draconian monetary policy is going to be required to bring inflation back below 2% considering how aggressive they had to be to get inflation up to 2%? Imagine how much more aggressive they'd have to be on the other side to get it back down if it was way above. After all, they were trying to move the needle just slightly from one5 to one9 Well, what happens if they have to move the needle from a higher number? And now the ECB has to move that needle from nine and a half all the way down to two. And if it was so difficult to get it up to two from just below, imagine how much more difficult it's going to be to get it all the way back down from nine and a half to two. And what type of political pain are Europeans going to have to endure as a consequence of this? Would it really been so bad if the ECB just left well enough alone and just accepted a 1.5 or 1.6% inflation? Did they really have to flood the Eurozone with so much cheap money that now we have a massive inflation problem that is almost impossible to contain? And we're about to find out just how much pain Europe is going to have to endure to bring inflation back down to 2% because... Christine Lagarde is saying that come hell or high water, that is exactly what the ECB is going to do. Now, they've given up the idea of being below 2%. Now they want to be exactly at 2%. Well, they've got a long way to go. And in fact, the rate hike from Thursday 
barely brings them any closer to their goal. Because if you have nine and a half percent inflation and you got one and a quarter percent interest rates, are you anywhere near fighting inflation? No. And in fact, Lagarde herself in the Q&A admitted that the policy rate, even after the rate hike, was still accommodative. Lagarde admitted that the ECB is still stimulating the Eurozone economy with its low interest rates. Well, if inflation is the problem and you're committed to solving it, why are you deliberately making it worse? If you know you have a stimulative monetary policy in the face of much too high inflation, and Lagarde continuously described inflation as being much too high, not a little too high, but much too high. It is a major threat. And if you acknowledge the size of that threat, why do you continue to fuel the fire? If Lagarde was really serious about fighting inflation, she would have raised interest rates a lot more than 75 basis points. Now, she claimed that this was front-loading the rate hikes. Not really. You're not loading up anything when you've got 9.5% inflation and you're raising rates to one and a quarter. Now, I think the reason that they did 75 basis points and not 50 basis points was just they wanted to do more than the markets expected, but by as little as possible. So they tacked on an extra 25 basis points. In fact, one of the questions that Lagarde got was how did they choose 75 basis points? Why not 50? Why not 100? And there is no real reason because even 100 would be too little. I think all they were trying to do is send a message that they were tough. So they tried to deliver that message by delivering a rate hike that exceeded expectations, even though a 100 basis point hike would still not be enough to do the job. And again, Lagarde admitted that. And in fact, at one point in the Q&A, she said that we're still a long way away from an interest rate that would be high enough to bring inflation back down to 2%. Now, she never really defined what rate is needed. There were several questions about the terminal rate, right? How high do you think interest rates are going to have to go? And she refused to answer that question because, of course, she doesn't want to answer that question because, A, she doesn't really know, but, B, I think she knows the rate is much higher than what it is right now. And she doesn't want to say that rate because it would scare the hell out of the markets to have to contemplate rates going that high. Later on, in answer to the same question, somebody said, how many more meetings do you think we need to get to where you want to be? Because she kept reiterating the fact that we need to get to interest rates that are consistent with returning inflation to our 2% goal. And she said, well, I don't know how many meetings, but it's probably more than two but fewer than five, which really narrows it down to three or four, which I also think is ridiculously narrow because I don't think there's any way that Lagarde can know for sure that in just three or four more rate hikes, that will be where we need to be. Because first of all, they don't even know where inflation is going to be following that third or fourth rate hike. But even the hikes that they're contemplating are too little too late. And if she's correct, that one and a quarter percent is a long way from where they need to go, then they're not going to get there in just three or four meetings unless they start raising rates by a lot more than 75 basis points. But by saying she was front-loading the increase in September, that implies that this was a bigger rate hike than subsequent weight hikes will be, although she did not commit to that. But of course, if all it's going to take is another three or four more hikes to get to where we need to be, 
then why not just raise rates to that level right now? Why do it slowly over another three or four meetings? Just move rates right now to where you think they need to be to bring inflation back down to 2%. If inflation is a big problem, why wait for three or four more meetings before you really start fighting it? Why not start the fight right now by immediately moving rates to where you know they need to be. The reason they're not doing that is because they can't do that, which is basically an admission that they can't really fight inflation either. All they can do is pretend that they're going to fight inflation. But what was very significant too about what Lagarde was saying is she was acknowledging that the Eurozone economy is going to weaken. She said that the outlook on growth is negative, but that inflation could get worse. That if anything inflation could surprise on the upside, even as growth surprises on the downside. Yet despite that negative outlook on growth, Lagarde promised to deliver continued rate hikes. So interest rates are going to keep going up even if the economy weakens. Now, she did say like Powell that the ECB is data dependent, but of course that also means if inflation gets worse, then maybe the planned rate hikes could be even bigger, but she's sending a powerful message, I think, not only to the markets, but to European politicians that they had better start getting their fiscal houses in order because the ECB is no longer there to bail them out because the ECB can no longer hide behind the veneer of too low inflation. I think as long as inflation was below 2%, the ECB could come up with an excuse to accommodate European politicians and take the pressure off them. But now that inflation is well above 2%, they no longer have that wiggle room. They are a single mandate central bank. It's not like the Fed where you got a dual mandate. It's all price stability. And they were able to tweak that a little bit from being below 2% to being close to but not 2% and now exactly 2% but they don't have wiggle room to redefine that target to 3% or 4%. So now that they're at 9%, they have got to get the rate back down. No matter what kind of economic or market pain might be involved, this is what the ECB has to do. And this is a game changer, I think, for the markets because up until Thursday, the Fed was the only central bank in the world that was at least pretending that it was going to fight inflation, at least of the major central banks, because you had the European Central Bank still inflating, not recognizing the problem or what they needed to do about it. And the same thing with Japan. Now, Japan is the lone holdout among those three central banks. They still have the monetary pedal to the metal. They're still ignoring the inflation threat. And one of the reasons they can do that is that inflation in Japan is still lower than it is in either the Eurozone or the United States. They have a little room before they're ultimately going to have to make the same policy pivot that both the Fed and now the ECB have made. But because the Fed is no longer the only central bank at least publicly committed to fighting inflation, I think that is a game changer for the U.S. dollar relative to the euro. And I think there's a good chance that now the euro again has seen its lows relative to the dollar and is going to rise. And in fact, Lagarde herself acknowledged that the weakness in the euro was part of the inflation problem, that it was making inflation worse. 
And so clearly, if Lagarde wants to bring inflation down, she has to allow the euro to go up. And so I think eurozone policy is now designed for a strengthening euro. For a long time, the ECB wanted a weaker euro. There were a lot of pressure from European exporters to have a weak euro. But the consequences of a weaker euro are higher inflation because your euros buy less. Weak euros buy less, strong euros buy more. And so now that you have the ECB committed to bringing inflation down from 9.5 to 2, which is a Herculean task given where it is and given the size of the ECB balance sheet, which the ECB is still not shrinking. They haven't committed to any type of quantitative tightening program. They're going to hold the balance sheet the way it is. In fact, they have committed to rolling over all of the maturing securities. So not only are they not going to try to shrink their balance sheet, they're going to make sure it doesn't shrink, which also is going to complicate their ability to reduce inflation to 2%. So ultimately, the ECB is going to have to give on that policy, and it's going to have to commit to shrinking its balance sheet, which is going to put even more pressure on Eurozone economies to cut government spending. And of course, that's also going to put more pressure on some of these countries to leave the Eurozone rather than cut government spending, as if leaving the Eurozone will allow deficit spending to continue. It won't. It will just create an even worse inflation problem for those nations that go back to their own currency and then print even more of it to avoid the political realities of balancing a budget. But if the ECB is truly committed to a strong euro to help fight inflation, that is a big problem for the United States, which is now going to have to deal with a weaker dollar, which is going to complicate its efforts to fight inflation. Because as I said, the Fed's efforts to fight inflation were being helped by the strength of the dollar. But if now the dollar is going to turn and it's going to weaken instead of strengthening, that is going to put upward pressure on U.S. inflation at the same time that it puts some downward pressure on Eurozone inflation. And now the Fed is going to have to fight even harder and the markets are not prepared for that outcome at all. Now, in addition to acknowledging that inflation was far too high and was likely to stay above target for far too long, Lagarde also tried her best to pin the blame for inflation on other factors. The primary culprit, according to Lagarde, was supply chain bottlenecks. In fact, she even said that the U.S. and the Eurozone have a different inflation problem, that in the U.S., inflation is more a function of demand, whereas in the Eurozone, it's more a function of supply. The reality is, Both the Eurozone and the U.S. have inflation problems for the same reason, and that is monetary policy on the part of the central banks, which were too loose on both sides of the Atlantic. That's why this is a global problem, not isolated to one country, because central banks in every country made the same mistake. Some just made it on a bigger scale, but it was all the same mistake. The only difference was the scale. Now, when Lagarde was talking about prices, she kept talking about food price inflation, energy price inflation. Again, central bankers like to talk about price inflation and pin it on certain commodities to try to push the blame for inflation away from themselves because inflation is not rising prices. Inflation is expanding money supply. But when you define inflation properly, it's obvious what the source is because it's the central banks 
that expand the money supply. But when you just focus on prices, if it's food prices, well, the central bank doesn't control food prices. The central bank doesn't raise energy prices. Well, that's Putin, right? Putin is the reason that energy prices are going up. And that's why we have inflation. It's not because of our own monetary policy. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. But when Lagarde was talking about monetary policy, she admitted that when interest rates were negative and they were doing QE, that they were stimulating the economy. And now she's saying those days are over. We're back on a path to positive rates. And we're just early in this journey. We have a long way to go. But when you admit that you had this monetary policy that was stimulating demand, you have to also accept responsibility for the effect that stimulus had on prices. What Lagarde wants to pretend is that the only reason that we're in this situation is because of the supply bottlenecks that were either the result of the pandemic or now the Russia-Ukraine war, but absolve the ECB of any responsibility for having contributed or even created this problem with its monetary policy. I will agree that the events that are happening now are making the problem worse, but the problem already existed. It was created by the central banks before these supply chain bottlenecks came around and made it worse. But in the face of these bottlenecks, whether it was pandemic or Ukraine, the central banks continued their asinine monetary policy. Even though it was obvious that supply was going to be constrained, they continued to fuel demand by printing more money. They should have obviously seen this coming and turned around. It's like Lagarde is captaining a ship. She could see it's headed for an iceberg, but instead of changing course, she just pulls back on the throttle so they hit the iceberg even sooner. The course change that was needed, both in the ECB and in the Fed, was to start shrinking money supply to allow interest rates to rise in the face of what was obviously going to be a big decline in supply. Demand had to come down commensurate with supply. But instead, because of easy money policy, the problems were exacerbated because not only was supply coming down, but demand was going up. And now we're dealing with the consequences of that policy and it portends far more economic and market pain than anybody at this point seems to comprehend. One of the important things about running your own business is that every hire counts and no hiring partner understands that like Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So don't spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like instant match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find 
quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job. As an entrepreneur, your time is very valuable. And that's why it's so important to save time by doing all your hiring in one place. And there's no better hiring time saver than Indeed's instant match. On Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a job post, you'll get a short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and then you can invite them to apply right away. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide that are already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com Peter. Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Also, while Lagarde refused to accept any responsibility on the part of the ECB for the inflation problem that now exists based on their prior monetary policy, she was also making excuses for why the ECB got its inflation forecasting so wrong. After all, the inflation problem that we have today was not forecast by the ECB. In fact, they forecast the opposite. And what Lagarde did to try to rationalize the ECB's failure is she said, hey, yeah, we got it wrong, but so did everybody else. All the other central banks got it wrong. All the other economic experts got it wrong. So how do you expect us to get it right? Well, first of all, I thought these central bankers were supposed to be our top experts. After all, that's why they got those jobs. They've got all the extra resources at their disposal. And if what Lagarde is saying is we're no better than any other economist, well, then what do we need you guys for? If you don't have any kind of special understanding, then why are you there? But of course, the reason that so many other central bankers got it wrong is because they all are reading from the same playbook. Either they're all lying or they're all incompetent, but they're all making the same mistake. So just because other people made mistakes doesn't excuse you for making them too. And by the way, there were plenty of people, myself included, who got this right. So to say we couldn't have gotten it right because so many other people got it wrong too ignores the people that didn't get it wrong, the people that got it right, the people that understood what was going to happen. And again, this was obvious. It's not rocket science. If you starve the economy of supply while fueling demand, it doesn't take a PhD in economics to realize you're going to have a big inflation problem, that prices are going to go way up. I guess the only people who could fail to see something so obvious are heads of major central banks or top economists who work on Wall Street in academia or the financial media. Lagarde also claimed that the ECB made its errors because of events that happened that were beyond their control and that they couldn't have foreseen like COVID, like the war in the Ukraine, like the energy blackmail. Well, first of all, there's always going to be things that happen that you can't foresee. That has to be part of your forecast. Anything that can go wrong will. But so much of what happened, they should have been able to foresee because, again, it was the obvious consequence of their own monetary excess. Keeping interest rates negative 
for so long. Imagine that. How can you have negative interest rates and not realize that there's going to be negative consequences from doing something like that? You are massively distorting markets. And how can you have this massive quantitative easing program print all this money and not recognize that all this money printing is going to cause inflation when in fact all that money printing is inflation? The consequence of that inflation are guaranteed. The only thing you don't know for sure is how long it's going to take before they manifest. Also, when Lagarde was trying to explain why the ECB pursued the policy of negative interest rates for as long as it did, she said that it was to guard the Eurozone economy against the threat of deflation. And again, there was never a threat of deflation in the Eurozone. The Eurozone always had positive inflation. So they just made up an excuse for the reasons that I said to bail out European governments. It wasn't because there was a danger of prices going down. And of course, prices going down would not have been a danger. They would have provided a relief. Wouldn't falling energy prices be good for Europe right now? Wouldn't falling food prices be good? Wouldn't that relieve the economy? What's wrong with a little deflation? Wouldn't it be positive right now if the Eurozone had some deflation? Because according to Lagarde, prices can never come down. Wherever they are, they must stay there. Price increases can never be reversed with price decreases. After all, that's deflation. Now, that's obviously ridiculous. It's clear that Europeans would be better off today if prices went down. I don't think anybody can argue against the fact that falling prices at this point would be good for Europe. Well, if falling prices are good for Europe now, they were good for Europe back then too. Falling prices are always good. People don't have an unlimited amount of money. We always want to buy more for less. That's how living standards rise. And it doesn't hurt business because not only are their prices falling, but so are their costs. So they end up selling more stuff and they make more money on higher volume. Everybody benefits when prices go down. People lose when prices go up. So it was always a lie that the ECB was telling when they claimed that Europe needed more inflation. And it's a lie now to continue to justify those policies as if they had any kind of benevolent purpose when it came to inflation. The nefarious purpose that that policy served can no longer happen because the ECB can no longer keep up that pretense while still pretending to be pursuing its mandate of so-called 2% inflation. The real reason for negative interest rates was so European politicians could keep on borrowing and spending with reckless abandon and without any negative political consequences. Well, those days are over and that party is coming to an end. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first learned that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless services starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and learning about their services, then it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless services online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass the sweet savings directly to you. When the time came to get my nine-year-old son Preston his first cell phone, Mint Mobile offered the ideal solution. The quality is just as good as what you get from major carriers, only at a fraction of the cost. And Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or the whole family. And at Mint Mobile, families start at just two lines. All plans come with a limited talk and text 
plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number and all your existing contacts. So switch to Mint Mobile today and start getting premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. Bringing the discussion a bit closer to home, at least my home, on the same day that Christine Lagarde was speaking before the European press, Fed Chair Jerome Powell sat down to have a discussion with a representative of the Cato Institute, one of the more free market libertarian oriented think tanks here in the United States. And so I wanted to comment a bit on some of the things that Powell said during that 30 or 40 minute or so discussion. Now, just like his counterparty over at the ECB, Powell also blamed everybody but the Fed for the inflation problem that we have. And he also hid behind all sorts of supposedly unforeseen events that were the reason that the Fed got it wrong when it forecast that inflation would be transitory. In fact, one of the things that Powell seemed to really blame inflation on, other than COVID-19 or Putin, was the public. Because according to Powell, the real problem is public expectations. That if the public expects inflation, well, they're going to get inflation. And that kind of takes the heat off the Fed. It's not that the public is expecting inflation because the Fed has created it. They just expect it. And it kind of absolves the Fed from any responsibility because after all, the people just get what they expect. And if they expect inflation, well, they get inflation. And therefore, what the Fed is supposed to do is try to influence those expectations so people don't inadvertently cause inflation by expecting it. Now, all this is a bunch of nonsense. The Fed causes inflation, and that's why people expect it to continue. The reality is the public doesn't even expect nearly as much inflation as the Fed is going to deliver. And when the public actually figures out how much more inflation there's going to be, then those expectations are going to soar. But inflation is not going to go up because the public expects it. The public's going to expect more inflation because the Fed creates it. In fact, when Powell talks about the inflation of the 1970s and the difficult job that Paul Volcker had in the early 1980s of fighting it was because the Fed had allowed inflation expectations to run out of control. And because we had had an inflation problem for so long, it was that much more difficult for Volcker to convince the public that this time the Fed was serious. But Powell has completely missed the mark in thinking that the 1970s inflation resulted from expectations. It did not. It resulted from the reckless monetary policy of the Federal Reserve during the 1970s. In fact, during the 1960s as well. And it was not just the Fed that acted recklessly, but Congress. But of course, by today's standards, They were fiscal conservatives. Today's Fed and the Federal Reserve we've had since Greenspan has been far more reckless than anything that happened prior to Volcker taking the helm. So we have a much bigger inflation problem now, and it has nothing to do with what the public expects. In fact, the public is going to have to deal with a lot more inflation than it expects, and it's not their fault. 
it is the Fed's fault and it's also Congress's fault. You know, one of the things that came up during this discussion was the ultimate day of reckoning based on the unsustainable fiscal path that we're now on. And of course, Cato brought that up and Powell had to reluctantly admit that we were on an unsustainable fiscal path. And his hope is that we get back on a sustainable path sooner rather than later. But meanwhile, everything that he has done as Fed chairman and everything his predecessors have done has been to delay forcing Congress to get back on a sustainable path. The reason that the budget has been so unsustainable for so long was because the Fed has been so accommodative for so long. The Fed has kept interest rates artificially low, making it easier for the government to go deeper into debt. The Fed has monetized government debt. The Fed has done all these QE programs deliberately to buy government debt to make it easier for the government to sell that debt. Absent the Fed's accommodation, absent these artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing programs, Congress would have been forced to get back on a sustainable fiscal path a long time ago. The reason they've been able to take a different path of instability was because of the cooperation by the Federal Reserve. And despite his confessed desire for the U.S. to get back on a fiscally sustainable path, if that's even possible at this point, Powell still refuses to give any advice to Congress on how to do that. He's hiding behind the supposed independence of the Fed to claim that fiscal policy is up to Congress and the Fed chairman has to keep quiet and not offer any opinions as to how that fiscal policy may impact his job with monetary policy. Because Powell said that he has to stay in his lane. My job is to control inflation and monetary policy and I'm not in a position to give advice to Congress on how to do its job. But if Congress is going to run massive deficits, it's impossible for Powell to do his job if Congress expects him to monetize those deficits. And if he will not do it, if Powell has now changed his mind and is no longer going to enable fiscal profligacy in Congress, don't you think he should tell Congress? Don't you think he should make that known and say, hey guys, You can't run these big deficits anymore because you can't rely on the Federal Reserve to buy these bonds because we're fighting inflation now. In fact, we're going to be jacking up interest rates. So what you should be doing, instead of figuring out ways to spend more money that you don't have, you better start figuring out how to cut spending because you're not going to be able to finance your debts anymore now that the Federal Reserve is no longer an accomplice to what you're doing. We are now an adversary. The Fed is now fighting inflation. The Fed is committed to a tighter monetary policy. We're going to shrink our balance sheet. We're going to raise interest rates. And therefore, you, Congress, and you, President Biden, you have no choice. You must act responsibly. You must start slashing government spending. That's what Powell needs to say. The fact that he refuses to say that is proof that he's not actually going to fight inflation the way he claims because he can't do it unless he has the cooperation of the government, unless he's willing to surprise the government by putting the country into a financial crisis and creating a sovereign debt crisis. And I know that he's not willing to do that. And that is because I know that no matter how much Powell wants to pretend that the Fed is independent, it clearly is not independent. The Fed 
unfortunately does the administration's bidding regardless of what political party that administration happens to belong to at the time. So whatever Biden wants Powell to do, that's probably what Powell will do. In fact, when he talked about the Fed's independence, he talked about the fact that that independence is so important because it served the public so well for so long. Other than Paul Volcker, I can't remember a time where the Fed's so-called independence has served the public well. The Fed has done nothing to serve the public well. In fact, what really made me angry is when Powell started talking about how special the Federal Reserve was and how special the people who worked at the Fed were because the Fed is just there to serve the public. Like they're this benevolent organization of do-gooders that people are making this great sacrifice to come to the Fed that he said he could think of no higher purpose, no more noble purpose than working at the Fed because everybody there is so committed to helping the public and everything they're doing is meant to serve the public. You know, when Powell talked about how the Fed is there to serve the public. It made me think of that Twilight Zone episode, To Serve Man, where they have this book from these aliens that landed on Earth, and they were able to decode the title, and the title was To Serve Man. And so everybody was happy to board the alien spaceship and take a vacation on their home planet until at the very end, they were able to decipher the rest of the book And it turned out that To Serve Man was a cookbook. And that's basically the same way the Federal Reserve is serving the public now. It's eating them. The Fed is the enemy of the public, not its friend. Another question that Powell was asked was whether he thought the elevated levels of inflation that we're experiencing now were just temporary and that they were related to the pandemic and stuff like that, or if it was something more structural and longer lasting. And Powell's answer was basically, there's no way to know. He claimed that economics is not really an exact science. And so nobody really knows what's going on. And there's no way to really forecast why we have this high inflation or what might happen to this inflation in the future. And of course, the reason that Powell doesn't think economics is a science is because he doesn't understand the science. And of course, it's not rocket science, but it is a science. And so it is possible to make forecasts based on that science. And it's clear that what we are experiencing is not some temporary phenomenon. This is not transitory. This is here to stay. Powell talked about how inflation has been low for the past 20 years. And so he's not sure if it's going to stay low. Maybe something has changed and there's no way for anybody to know. And so maybe at some point in the future, we'll be able to look back and figure it out. But it's a complete mystery right now. It's not a mystery. Maybe it is for him. But there are two clear reasons why inflation did not appear to be a problem over these past 20 years. One, we lied about it. We found a way to report the inflation so that it made it look like it was a lot less than it really was. So we were dishonest in the CPI. So if we had a more honest CPI, we would have seen much higher rates of inflation. And so we couldn't pretend that we've had no inflation. But I think the other factor has been increasing global productivity, particularly coming out of Asia, as more and more of what Americans used to produce ended up being produced offshore. That was able to temporarily offset 
the consequences of all the inflation that was being created by the Federal Reserve and maybe other central banks. So it was outsourcing and foreign productivity as well as lying in how we measured it that let us get away with pretending we didn't have inflation. Remember, if productivity should have reduced prices by 10%, but instead, because we print all this money, prices go up by 2%, that doesn't mean we had 2% inflation. That means we had 12% inflation because prices were 12% higher than they would have been had the Fed not created inflation. But all of this increase in global productivity and phony numbers allowed the government to get away with creating all this inflation without the apparent adverse consequences. Of course, there were adverse consequences in the structure of the economy. You can see it in the collapse of our industrial base and our manufacturing, the exploding trade deficits. All of this was a byproduct of this inflationary monetary policy, as well as the asset bubbles that the Fed blew in stocks or real estate or bonds or you name it. So a lot of negative things were consequences of the Fed's inflation. But now what has changed and what Powell doesn't understand is all of that inflation has caught up with us. And yes, what we did under COVID made it even worse. And Powell tried to claim that the effects of the monetary and fiscal policy early in COVID that nobody could have known back in 2021 that this was coming, which is ridiculous. Of course, anybody who understands even basic economics could have known that, which I guess disqualifies everybody at the Fed, because maybe in order to get a job at the Fed, you have to flunk a test in basic economics. But he tried to claim that even in 2021, nobody could have forecast the type of inflation that we're experiencing in 2022. Not only did I forecast it in 2021, I forecast it in 2020 because it was just as obvious back then based on the fiscal and monetary policy combination, there was no way this could have ended but with massive inflation. But what Powell doesn't get is all those factors that allowed the Fed to get away with a lot of inflation in the 2000s and the 2010s, those factors are gone. And so now the Fed is creating even more inflation by printing even more money, but the factors that were insulating us from some of the negative consequences as they would be expressed in rising consumer prices, they're gone. We're not going to be able to export our inflation to China anymore. Those days are over. We're going to experience the full consequences, not only of the money printing of today, but of the money printing of the past. Now, the only thing that Powell actually said during this interview, which I really agree with, was when the conversation shifted into cryptocurrency. And it was pretty obvious that the guy doing the interview, was a big proponent of Bitcoin. And apparently so is his future son-in-law, who was the one who photobombed Janet Yellen by holding up a Buy Bitcoin sign at one of her press conferences. So this guy comes from a Bitcoin family and he wants to get Powell to acknowledge Bitcoin. And the guy doing the interview brought it up as a viable alternative to fiat currency, even though it's fiat in and of itself because it has no real value. But when Powell talked about it, he mentioned that it was an unbacked cryptocurrency. And he said that he did not see any value in any of these unbacked 
cryptocurrencies, that they were not monetary substitutes, that they were not viable as a medium of exchange or a unit of account, and they couldn't be a store of value. He correctly identified Bitcoin as nothing more than a speculative asset. I guess you can consider it an asset for now because if you sell it, you can get a lot of money, but that won't always be the case. If you wait too long, you won't be able to sell your Bitcoin, or if you do sell, you'll barely get any money. But I do agree it is extremely speculative. But then Powell started talking about stable coins, cryptocurrencies backed by dollars, and there he sees a value. He thinks those type of innovations can actually be helpful in facilitating commerce. He just said that they need to be heavily regulated because if the public is going to regard them as if they were money, then the regulators, including the Fed, need to treat them like money and they need to be subject to the same type of regulations. And I agree that if you're going to have a cryptocurrency, it needs to be backed by something. It can't be backed by nothing. But I disagree that you want to back your cryptocurrency by the dollar or the euro or any other fiat currency because if the dollar isn't a viable long-term store of value, then neither is a cryptocurrency that's backed by the dollar. Because if you're backed by the dollar, you're no better than what you're backed by. And so if people have a problem with the dollar as a long-term store of value, then why would you want to own a cryptocurrency that derived its value from the very dollars that you believed are not going to retain their value. So what we really need and what the public needs are cryptocurrencies backed by real money, backed by gold. If you have a cryptocurrency that's backed by actual gold, well, then you really have something. Because not only do you have a currency that can act as a viable long-term store of value, but you also have a viable medium of exchange and unit of account. We know that gold works as a medium of exchange and a unit of account because it has worked in the past. When we were on a gold standard, everybody transacted in gold. Every price was a function of gold. And that's because the dollar itself was defined as a specific weight of gold. So anything that was priced in dollars, by definition, was priced in gold. We can return to a situation where goods and services are priced in gold and they are paid for in gold, but it doesn't have to be with physical gold itself. The medium of exchange could just as easily be a cryptocurrency backed by gold. Now, I've spent a little time on this podcast talking about the Eurozone and talking about the United States. I don't want to leave out Great Britain because a lot's going on in Great Britain. First of all, not only do they have a new king, Charles III, following the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, but they also have a new prime minister, Liz Truss, who is supposedly a conservative. And I want to talk about this supposedly conservative policy that she seems to be spearheading. And that is the government capping the amount of money that British families pay annually for their heating and their electric bills. What the British government wants to do is over the next two years, mandate that no family should have to pay over 2,500 pounds per year for heating and electricity. No matter how much energy they use, that is the most that they will have to pay. Now, the politics behind this are simple. Energy costs are soaring and politicians want to get votes by promising relief, promising people to cap how much they have to spend on electricity and heating. 
but this is a horrible policy that is going to backfire with dire consequences if it is in fact enacted. Because it's very important when you have scarcity, when you don't have enough supply, the market needs to ration that supply through the pricing mechanism. The reason that people will cut back on using energy is if the price goes way up. So if it's very expensive, you're going to find ways to conserve and get by with less. Now, people don't like having to make those sacrifices, having to get used to using less energy, but it's sacrifices that people have to make. And there's no way that government can get around that because what the government is doing with these price caps is it is going to be short-circuiting those market mechanisms. If people are going to pay the same amount of money for their heating and electricity, no matter how much they use, their incentives are to use as much as possible. In fact, once you hit the 2,500 number, any energy that you use is free. And so you might as well use as much as you possibly can because there is no cost. So why give up something if it doesn't cost you anything to have it? So what the government is doing is creating an incentive for people to overuse a resource that is in short supply. Britain is acknowledging that there's a shortage when it comes to energy, yet their very policy will encourage increased demand in the face of a shortage of supply. What we need is the free market to reduce demand, commensurate with the reduction in supply, and the only way to do that is with price. You have to allow the market to work. You have to allow prices to rise when something is scarce. If you don't allow prices to rise, if you artificially hold them low, then you're going to create even bigger shortages, which is exactly what the consequence of this policy is going to be. And then what's going to have to happen is if the government won't let the market ration energy, the government's going to have to do it. The government is going to have to control who gets energy and who doesn't. There's going to be widespread shortages, power blackouts, What the UK is doing, just like everything that government does, is not going to solve the energy crisis in the UK. It's going to end up making the crisis much worse. I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking about some of the economic data that came out this week, as well as what happened in the financial markets. And there wasn't a lot of data that was released. Earlier in the week, we got the final read on the PMI composite, which came out below expectations that were already low, and they just came out even lower. The composite index was supposed to come in at 45. Instead, it came in at 44.6. And the service index, which was supposed to come in at 44.1, came out at 43.7. These are extremely weak numbers that are highly indicative of a nation already in recession, not headed to, but in recession. Now, the ISM service sector number was not as bad. That actually beat expectations. It was supposed to be 55.4, and that was below the 56.7 from the prior month. Instead, it went the other way. We went up to 56.9. The trade deficit in goods and services came out a bit larger than expected, although not by much. They were looking for a deficit of $70.5 billion. Instead, we got $70.6 billion. But a bigger upward revision to the prior month, which went from $79.6 billion deficit to $80.9 billion. So again, these are horrific trade numbers that are, in fact, subtracting from GDP. The GDP now forecast by the Atlanta Fed actually notched down a bit on Friday. 
it is now at 1.3% for the third quarter. Now, if it actually comes in at 1.3%, we will break a two-quarter losing streak where we've had two back-to-back quarters of negative GDP, the definition of recession that people now want to deny, but I don't believe we're going to break that trend. I believe that by the time we get the final read on Q3 GDP, the third quarter will also be a negative number. And I expect the Atlanta Fed's forecast to go negative before we get the actual number. The other better than expected number that came out were the weekly jobless claims, which were supposed to be 240,000 and which ended up coming in at 222,000. And in fact, the prior week's number from 232,000 was revised down to 228. I had been expecting these numbers to start moving up and I still expect that they will, but it seems like they have temporarily taken a move in the other direction. But I still believe that ultimately we're gonna experience a big increase in jobless claims. We did get an indication that that may happen with consumer credit, which was supposed to come in at $33 billion increase for July. And instead, we got just $23.8 billion, which was below the low end of the estimates. Now, of course, it's not a good thing when consumers are taking on more debt. So the fact that they're taking on less debt is actually good but it's not good for the bubble economy. Now, of course, I think the bubble economy needs to deflate and the sooner the better, but if you're counting on the consumer to drive that bubble economy, the only way the consumer can do it is if he has more credit because he's not able to do it from their income because their incomes are insufficient and any meager gains in income are being more than offset by much larger gains in the cost of living. So the only way to keep on spending is if they keep on borrowing. And if they're not borrowing as much, and it's probably not from lack of desire, it's probably due to lack of access. Credit is likely tightening up. And so even though consumers want to borrow more, they actually can't do it. And if they can't borrow, they can't spend. And if they can't spend, this whole house of cards built on the foundation of that spending collapses as well. And then all the jobs that were associated with that spending disappear too. Moving from the economic data to the markets, we saw a pretty good gain in all of the stock market averages this week. Investors ignored what I believe to be very bad news coming out of the ECB. Again, not just the greater than expected 75 basis point rate hike, but the fact that the ECB has now joined the Fed in its resolve to fight inflation, no matter what it takes, no matter the cost, the ECB is now going to do whatever it takes to bring inflation back down to 2%. This is very negative for the U.S. stock market. Whether people realize it or not, it is. The S&P was up about 2% on the week. The Dow Jones did a little bit better. It rose 2.7% on the week. Russell 2000 up 4% and the NASDAQ up 4.1%. So it was a solid week and a solid finish to the week on Friday. In fact, if you look at the more speculative tech stocks, the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation was up 10% on the week. Grayscale Bitcoin Trust up 8.6%. By the way, all those gains happening on Friday, that trust was down going into Friday because it soared by 11% on Friday. And that's the only reason that it was positive for the week. Of course, Bitcoin going up as well, 
not only getting back above 20,000, but above 21,000. In fact, as I'm recording this on Saturday afternoon, we're about 21,400. But what really sparked that rally in Bitcoin on Friday was not simply that everybody was buying risk, and so it was risk on, but there was news that Sam Bankman-Fried was buying a 30% stake in Anthony Scaramucci's Skybridge Capital. And this got everybody excited about the space. In fact, a good portion of the money that Bankman-Fried is depositing onto Skybridge's balance sheet is going to be used to take positions in cryptocurrencies. So if there's going to be all this new buying, the idea is that the price is going to move up. So buy now and front run that trade. But I think this is another head fake. I expect Bitcoin to quickly surrender these gains. I don't think this is a game changer at all. Bankman Freed has been a longtime proponent of crypto. He's a big investor. If he didn't put this money into Skybridge to buy crypto, he might have bought the crypto on his own. I don't think this is the same as a new player entering the space. This is an existing player consolidating with another player. To me, it shows that the crypto world is getting smaller, not bigger, because they've run out of new players. So we don't have any new money coming into the game. It's the same money. We're just rearranging the deck chairs. This is the Titanic. It is going down. My advice is rather than going down with the ship, abandon now while you still can. Moving from fool's gold to real gold, the yellow metal was actually up a bit on the week. Gold rose by four-tenths of 1%, settling the week at about $1,717 an ounce. A bigger gain in silver, up 4.5% on the week, closing out at about 1884 But the miners finally had a decent week. The GDX, which is the senior producers, was up 5.5% on the week. And the juniors, the GDXJ, we're up 6.3% on the week. But I think the most significant action of the week was in the foreign exchange markets and in the bond market. First, taking a look at the dollar index, it soared interweek to a new high for this move of 110.79 before reversing and actually closing the week negative at 108.973. It closed last week at 109.54. Now, it wasn't an outside reversal where we took out the previous week's high and then closed below the previous week's low, but it still was a reversal in that we took out the previous week's high and then closed negative on the week. But probably more important than the technicals were the fundamentals because I think, again, what happened with the ECB is a game changer for the dollar. I still want to see the dollar index close below 105 to have more conviction in my call that the dollar has reached the top. But I think the fact that we took out the old highs and then couldn't hold them and had this reversal at the end of the week, I think is more evidence that we have seen a top. But let's see what happens over the next week or two to see if the dollar index can get back below 105. And if it does, the dollar has a long way to fall. And again, that means the Fed is going to have a much more difficult job on its hands when it comes to fighting inflation. And finally, taking a look at what happened in the bond market, yields rose across the board. The high point on the yield curve is now the 12-month Treasury bill, which yields 3.6%. Now, not too long ago, the high point on the curve was the five-year, and then it became the two-year, and now it's the one-year. 
pretty soon it's going to be the six month. This yield on a six month T bill right now is 3.53%. Now, why do we keep moving forward the high point of the yield curve? Well, that's because the markets are increasing their expectations for when the economy is going to roll over. The sooner the economy weakens, the sooner the Fed is going to be forced to pivot. And that pivot is being priced into the market. But the day of the pivot keeps moving closer and closer to the present. And that's why the high point of the yield curve keeps moving forward in time because the markets expect the Fed to start to cut rates. And so they think rates will start moving down sooner. But the reality is inflation is going to rear its head and really prevent the bond market from behaving the way bond investors expect. In fact, if you look at what happened on the 30-year bond, that yield made a new high on the year. We actually got all the way up to 3.5% on the week. We closed at 3.45%. But I'm looking for a big drop in the 30-year bond price, which means a big spike in yields to happen at any point. The yield on a 10-year treasury is 3.31%. So it's still inverted from the yield on a five-year at 3.44%, which is below the yield on the two-year at 3.56. But we have an inverted yield curve all the way from the 12-month Treasury bill to the 10-year Treasury note. And then we have a slight positive slope from the 10-year to the 30-year. All this is indicative of an economy in recession or one that the markets understand is rapidly headed for recession. But what it also indicates is a market that is completely oblivious to the risk of inflation. Because if investors realized how much higher future inflation is actually going to be, they would be demanding a much higher inflation premium for holding long-term treasuries. But the $64 trillion question is how much longer is that delusion going to last? And when are bond investors going to finally wake up to reality? Because when that happens, the bottom doesn't just drop out from under the bond market, but the stock market, the real estate market, the dollar, and the entire U.S. economy.